In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Christ is in our midst. Good morning. It's so good to see all of you, and thank you very much for choosing to spend Sunday morning. I know you have so many options to do, but I appreciate you being with us and praying along our side. We continue also this Sunday in our, on our journey to explore why St. Paul wrote his letter to the uh, Romans, to the people, to the Christian community that was living in Rome at the time. If you missed any of the previous uh, installments, please go back to the website and to the YouTube and you can hear the sermon that led us until today where we're going to talk about part of chapter 3 and chapter 4. Even if you have not read the epistle, doesn't matter. The concepts that I'm going to talk about are, can stand on their own. And at least when you will try to read the epistle, you'll be able to take those concepts and apply them to understand what St. Paul is talking about. Last time, we saw that there was a tension between the Gentile Christians who were living in Rome at the time and the Jewish Christians who left the city because Claudius, the emperor, kicked them out of the city for some time and then they are back into the city to form one community. But within that one community, there are some tensions, especially related to the law and what do we do with all the traditions that the Jews brought with them. The goal of St. Paul is to keep that community unified and not to be divided into Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. So the question that I teased you about last time was, what is the goal of the law? Why did God give the law in the first place? And here there's a translation that happened some long, long time ago. Jerome, when he translated the Old Testament, the New Testament, he used a word that is lex, which led to using it now as law in English. Now, within the context that we are in, we always understand law as certain rules that we cannot break. But for the Jewish mindset, this was not the case. Law translates Torah, or in other words, nomos in Arabic namus, which includes more than just the Ten Commandments that were in the law and the books that were in the Old Testament. It included every tradition and every practice that God asked His people that was handed down the generations so that the Jews will practice these things uh, over the years. Some of them related to food, association with other people, clothing, circumcision, which was before the law as well, Circumcision was the sign, the physical sign that someone belongs to the people of God. And that was from the time of Abraham, even before the law was given to Moses himself. So what is the role of the Torah in the life of the people? When the Jewish people, the Hebrews, came out of Egypt with Moses, God wanted to dwell among his people. But his holy his holiness is so powerful that it might burn out the people who are sinners. And at that time, long after Adam and Eve, humanity was so broken and so sinful to the point where God was not able to live among His people unless they do something. 
So the law was given to them, the Torah was given to them, so that they know what is right and wrong, and so that they repent for their own sins. That was the goal of the Torah, to manage the sins of the people and so that God is able to live among them. So that they did the daily uh, sacrifices. You know, if you read the Old Testament, there are always sacrifices that the high priest and the priest in the temple are doing every day. There's a sacrifice every day as a reminder for the people that you are broken, you need to repent for your sins every day. But also along these lines, there is uh, a yearly, an annual sacrifice that happens once a year called Yom Kippur. It happened that two weeks ago, our, brother Jew, uh, our breth Jewish brethren celebrated that. On Yom Kippur is the yearly, the annual sacrifice where the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies and do one specific thing, which is to cleanse the taint of the sin of the people on the Holy of Holies where, or the mercy seat where God is present among his people. On Yom Kippur then, the goal is to remove the taint of the sin that's accumulated throughout the year. Because I, as I said last time, sin is not just breaking the rule, sin is a state of being, a way of living because of our brokenness. And it does not only affect the person who is sinning, but it affects the entire community. And even the temple, the Holy of Holies, will be tainted because of the sin of everyone in the community. So that was necessary for the high priest to go inside once a year. And that's why the Jewish people consider this the most holy day of the calendar, because that's when the, even the Holy of Holies is cleansed from the sin of the people. But what happens on Yom Kippur? We might not know if we have never been in association with someone who told us about what the tradition of Yom Kippur is. But there are two goats involved in Yom Kippur. One of them, the high priest will put the sins of all the people on it and then sends it out into the wilderness to perish. That one has all the sins of the people that accumulated through the year and that's why it is called the scapegoat. That's where scapegoat in English comes from, because it's this goat that has all the sins of the people that is sent out into the wilderness. The other goat, which does not have any sins, it's pure, and that, that goat is slaughtered and its blood used to cleanse the seat of the mercy seat that is in the Holy of Holies. So all this elaborate system that happens every year and every day is mainly to manage the sinfulness of the people until Christ can come and do the ultimate work, which is to save us from slavery to sin. The law, the Torah, was not able to do that. It was mainly a management system for those sins that everyone has done. In a way, the Torah is to show us our shortcomings. It's not to make us holy or righteous. It's mainly to show everyone that here are the rules that you broke, you better repent for them. But this will not save us until Christ himself comes. It is like you going to the doctor and you have sinus infection. If he gives you anti-congestion only, that's management of the, of the symptoms. This is not treating the infection that you have. 
Only antibiotics will help. But in the Torah, it was only the anti-congestion. It is not the antibiotic. The other thing that Paul is talking about is when he calls someone a Jew. At that time, Jew was not the entire people. Jew refers to the people who lived in Judea. And that what gives them their function. Judea means let God be praised. So when he attacks the Jews in the epistle, that rather than bringing praise to God, which is your function, you're trying to bring praise to yourself through having the Torah or thinking that because you have the Torah or you're circumcised, then God should, should be grateful to you. While actually you're doing the opposite. You're bringing praise to yourselves and while your function should be bringing praise to God himself. And that's why in chapter 2 he attacks them saying, and by the way this applies to us Christians as well, it is because of us that people are blaspheming against God. Because supposedly we should be bringing praise to God and because of us other nations, people who do not believe in God, are saying blasphemes against God himself. So being a Jew does not mean that uh, you know the Torah, being a Jew at the time, a, a, a loyal, faithful follower of God is to apply the Torah in your life and to be faithful to God first and foremost. Not to bring, bring glory to yourself, but to God who gave the Torah in the first place. Now, Paul gives one example that is very relevant to us in this discussion. Abraham. Abraham is the father of many nations. He's the father of faith and he's the father of the Jewish people when he took him out of his own people. And so Abraham was not circumcised. Abraham did not have the Torah at the time because the Torah was given later with Moses. But Abraham was called that he was the most faithful person at the time. Not only God promised him that many people, many nations will be born of him. He, was, he and Sarah was very old at the time. But, so God promised him, if you come out of your people, I'll give you many nations. Many nations will be born of you. Now, Abraham did not sit down and say, oh, show me your power. Prove yourself and then I'll come out. Because it's too risky to leave my people, take everything and move somewhere where I don't know where I'm going. Right? But Abraham was faithful in the sense that the one who promised him is the true God and that true God will be able to do whatever he promised. So he leaves everything and follows God into the wilderness. This tells us so much about what faith is. It is the faithfulness of Abraham that made him good in the eyes of God. Not because he had the Torah, not because he was circumcised, and all of everything that he did was out of faithfulness to God in the first place. On the other hand, so that what makes sense that knowing the Torah is not important if we don't have faithfulness in the first place. Knowing what is right and wrong is not important unless we are faithful to the one who tells us what is right and wrong. Therefore, when someone comes and says, I am a good person, I don't need religion, I don't need God, I don't need any of the things that we are doing here. True, you don't. Because the good works that you're doing are coming from a wrong mindset. 
The good works that come without faithfulness to God does, do not build a relationship, a loving relationship. Imagine two people are married, a husband and a wife. The husband cleans the dishes, the wife cooks. That's an only action of, you do this, I do that. It's an exchange. This is a contract. This is not marriage. This is not love. This is, you do this, I will do that. All of you who are married know that if this is the situation, every interaction at the household is like this, there's something broken. The same thing applies to our relationship to God. If it's about love and commitment and faithfulness, then it should not be in the mindset of a hired one, a hireling. That's what St. Paul is talking about in the, in the epistle as well. We do not do the, the work because we are waiting for the wages. We do not do the work of God because we are bribing Him, so He has to reward us according to our own desires. St. Paul talking about the mindset of a one who is hired is waiting for the wages. So when you do a, a good work and you're waiting for the wage from God, then you are only a hired person. You're not a son or daughter of God. So our invitation today is to keep in mind that faithfulness to God is the way to go forward in our life, to know God and to be in commitment to Him for every day of our life, not only on Sundays. And that's the only thing that will bring His free grace because He's not waiting to give us wages for our good work. He wants to give freely an abundance of grace because we are His sons and daughters. And I pray that when we are doing our good works, let us remember that these works are reflective of who we are as sons and daughters, not because we are waiting for our wages. Amen.